0: Genesis is the book of beginnings. It tells us about God who created everything and called it good. It teaches us about humanity, how things went wrong in the world, and God's plan to make everything right again. We are Christ the King Church. For more information, visit ctksnc.com. Good morning, church. And happy Palm Sunday to all of you. As, uh... Holy Week begins, I pray that each of you will delight in the grace of Jesus and that you will see God and experience God fresh this year, this Easter season. Well, we are doing a series through Genesis, and we have reached the climax of the narrative of Abraham. And then after Easter, we're going to start our third installment of the series, where the narrative shifts and focuses on Isaac. In the beginning, back of the beginning of uh, the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15, this conflict was set up where God was cursing Adam and Eve for their sin. And Genesis 3.15 establishes this cosmic conflict between two family lines. There's the family line of uh, Satan, the ancient serpent, and then there's the family line of Abraham, or excuse me, the family line of God, the people of God, which will become Abraham. So the offspring of Satan, I mean, Satan doesn't have children, but Satan steals and kills and destroys God's people. So Satan, uh, his offspring are those that he has claimed from among uh, human beings. And those are the people who oppose God and his purposes. But the offspring of woman is those who love and worship God. And, And God said, I will put enmity between the offspring of woman and the offspring of the serpent, right? So this Genesis 3.15 promised that at some point, an offspring of woman would overcome the serpent. He would, he would, uh, the serpent would bruise his heel, but the, the, the offspring of woman would crush his head or bruise his head. And so he would overcome the serpent, reverse the curse, restore man to his rightful place in the Garden of Eden. Now, if we fast forward through the story, Genesis 12, we see that God's promised seed will come from Abraham. So the seed of woman, this promised line, continues and progresses to now. It focuses on Abraham, and God says, I want to make your name great, and I want to give you many, many descendants, many offspring. And there's going to be a line that comes from Abraham. And so after waiting for 25 years, God gave them a child. God kept His promise. The seed of woman from Genesis three fifteen. That line continues. Focuses on Abraham, and then God made a promise. And twenty five years later, after waiting and in infertility and barrenness, they have a son. They've got a child finally. God has answered their prayer. And so Genesis twenty one. We saw this last week. The son was born, Isaac. He was born to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. And this boy, this one child, represents all of that hope and promise that God made back in the garden to Eve. And is carried through to Abraham, and now is carried, and rep- this whole this the whole promise rests and represent, is represented by this boy, this child Isaac. Later generations, whenever they hear this story, they would look back, and they would see in this story this man Isaac that he represents them because he is their future. Or he was their past, they were his future. It's like they would come from Isaac. So when they're reading and hearing this story and this threat, this constant threat of that seed of woman is is, uh, against, there's always a threat against her seed. They see that they, they themselves are under siege. They are threatened. So all throughout the rest of Genesis, this drumbeat continues. The offspring of woman is under siege and he's threatened by the dragon, Satan, the ancient serpent. And Any threat to the chosen line of Abraham was a threat to the whole nation. Yet God preserved them through every trial. And so now we come to Genesis 22, which is where we are today. And our story today, Genesis 22, is truly one of the best told stories in world literature. It's a beautiful story. It's also one of the most... Agonizing stories in the Bible because we see the most painful trial I think that just about any of us could imagine having to go through. It's a story of God testing Abraham's faith and the pacing of the story, the pacing of the narrative as it's moved along in Genesis. It slows down to a crawl. Each moment is milked for maximum effect. And this story also displays God's character and His grace and it establishes a tension. And that tension is going to remain until the time of Christ. That's where we are today. Genesis 22. Let's dig in. Genesis 22. And we're going to tell this story of Abraham's call to sacrifice Isaac. We'll start out with Abraham's test. Abraham's test. Verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, get this, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now let's pause here. One thing that stands out in this story is just how the pacing of the narrative really slows down. Like every word, these phrases are just kind of multiplied and heaped up. It's like listening to a podcast on half speed. You know, you like slow it down. It's like everything just seems to move really slow. And that's by design. Every word heightens the tension in the story. The slow pacing highlights the disturbing nature of what it is that God is asking Abraham to do. God commands Abraham to do something detestable. With words that would have struck terror in his heart. Now verse 1 tells us what it actually is. This is a test. It was a test of Abraham's faith, a test to reveal the depth and quality of Abraham's faith. In verse 2, he says, take your son, your only son, whom you love. If you know the Bible well, if you know the New Testament well, that language sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. Whenever Christ was baptized, God said, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. This is the first time the word love appears in the Bible. Genesis 22. The Son of the Father. And the word son adds to the drama. In Genesis 22, the word son is repeated 13 times. This repetition again and again. Your son, your son, your son, your son. So this is the true son, the son of promise, the promised offspring of woman, the son that was promised in Genesis 3.15, this line being carried forth. So God required Abraham to sacrifice what he loved most and to lay down what was most precious to him. Now, God already knew what Abraham would do, right? I mean, God knows all things. God knows all possibilities. God knows past, present, future. God knew knew what Abraham would do, but Abraham didn't. You don't know what you would do until you're put in a situation where you have to do it. And so Abraham had to go through the test to find out what it was that he would do. Whenever God tests our faith, he doesn't do it for his benefit. He does it for our benefit. God tests your faith for your benefit. God tests your faith to make you stronger. James chapter 1 says this exactly. James 1 verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Notice that the testing, here's the thing that God does, the testing of your faith produces an effect. And the effect is steadfastness. You're stronger. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So God tests us in order to teach us. He makes us stronger. He tests our faith to strengthen us, to build us up, so that we can trust him more fully. That's why he does it. You know, I've heard it said that faith is like a muscle and that it gets stronger with exercise. Whenever you exercise faith, you're you're testing your faith. It's like a workout for your faith, and your faith gets stronger when it's tested. So faith is like a muscle. And so when our faith is weak, our trust is low, whenever we're spiritually flabby, then we need exercise. Our faith needs to be tested. We We need resistance training to make our faith stronger. So trials are like a spiritual weight room where God forces us to do something hard, to lift something heavy. And by lifting something heavy and doing hard things, repetition, by doing that over and over again, it gets easier. You know, when you're working out, you're on a training regimen, you start at five or 10 pounds and you work your way up to 15 and 20 and 25 and so on. It's like the more you do it, the more you lift heavy things, the more strong you get and the more you're able to lift even heavier things. Faith is like that. God will grow your faith by testing it. And you will get stronger with resistance training, by facing challenges, by overcoming hard things in your life. Abraham's faith grew by testing. So through trial and error, through victory and defeat, over a long period of time, we see Abraham's faith growing. Now here's the climax of Abraham's story. So we've seen the trial and error, right, throughout the, the story of Genesis from chapter 12 to 22. We've seen the trial and error, the, the victory and defeat. And now we're here at the final test. This is, the, this is like the boss level in a game, you know. This is like the big test, the final battle, where he's wrestling the boss. And the boss is the inner demons of unbelief, where he is going to see, can he overcome? Does he believe God to do something unthinkable? Our faith is exercised in the same way. The harder the test, the greater the growth. James says, when hard things happen, do what? You count it all joy, right? When you meet trials in your life, when hard things happen, rejoice. I mean, literally, sing a little song, do a little dance, enjoy it. And believe in the back of your mind, God is up to something good in my life through this very hard thing. God is teaching me something. God is showing me that he is faithful and trustworthy and he's producing in me, through this trial, steadfastness. So the test, the thing right now that you least want to go through, the hard times in your life right now that is oppressing you, that is incredibly painful and difficult, rejoice. Because God wants something better for you by taking you through the trial. It's benefiting you. God is up to something good. And the only way to produce that good thing in you is through this trial. God tested my faith once. Um, I was going on a summer mission trip overseas to Slovakia for missions. And I really did struggle to believe that God would provide for me. And one of the things I prayed early on in this fundraising process was, I wanted God to provide, but you know I know how the game works. It's like you've got an overall budget for all the students that are going on the trip, and if some makes some earn you know they bring in a little bit more and somebody else brings them a little bit less, you know it all evens out, and there's a little bit of play built into the budget for the whole trip, and you know. You, can, you, you might still go even if you don't quite hit your goal. But I, was, I prayed specifically, God, I want to see you provide exactly what I need. I don't want to go because somebody else raised less. I want, I want to see you come through and provide for me. And I prayed explicitly for that. So God grow, grew my faith through that experience. And I prayed that God would provide every penny. And so I did all the things that you do. I mean, I, I did my part. I sent the letters. I did, uh, you know, made the phone calls and how awkward that could be, you know, to call people and ask them for money, especially if they are like, ah, I think I've seen you once at church, whatever. They didn't know who I was, some people, but, you know, and I, I didn't make a lot of progress and I started to get really discouraged. And now a leader found out that several people in the church I was going to didn't support me because my pastor told them not to. And me fundraising for my trip was competition for, you know, the, the money that the church was trying to, trying to raise for their own thing. Uh, so that was really discouraging. But, you know, over time, little by little, I kept calling and I kept uh, praying and believing, and the money started to trickle in little by little. So the week before I left, I was still a good way off my mark, I don't, maybe a little more than halfway. I don't remember exactly, but I was like a little more than halfway there. I mean, I was, I was getting there, but nowhere near what I needed. Um, so I was worried that maybe I wouldn't be able to go, um, or if I, if I did get to go, I would be able to go without the prayer that I've been asking for being answered. And I really wanted to see God come through and provide this amount for me. Um, so uh, the, week, the day before we were set to leave, I had a large gift that came through. And that was a real jolt. I mean, I was like... Oh, the, I wish I could remember who it was that sent it in. I don't remember that, but I remember the gift itself. And I remember that it really was just like, oh, well, that's great. I was still $400 short, though. But God really did encourage me and bolster my faith through that. And, of course, I talked to the director, and he said, well, you can still go. We've worked it out with the budget. You're able to go. I was disappointed, but I was encouraged also that God did provide it, especially, you know, there at the last minute I had this large gift that came in. Um. But, you know, I had prayed that God would provide for me. And I wanted to be able to go on this trip feeling very confident um, that I was there because God sent me there. And God put me there. And he had a purpose for me being there. And maybe you could say I was putting God to the test. I don't know. Maybe I was. But that was what I was asking God to do. Well, um, the, on the way to the airport, um, and, you know, the director, he, he picked me up. And on the way to the airport, he told me that I, there was a gift that came in for me, but it, they didn't send it to my address. They sent it directly to the project budget. It was somebody else that, um, that knew the director, and they just sent the money directly to him. And I said, well, how much did they send it for? And he said, it was for $400. And this is on the way to the airport. I mean, I was already in. I was able to go. And I was just like, I was floored. I was able to see, like, God did something. He answered a prayer prayer. Not exactly down to the penny, but but it was pretty darn close. Now that for me was was a powerful example in my life. And you know, strangely it's like up until that point I've really struggled. I mean it's like I had a lot of doubts, a lot of faith problems, but exercising that faith and being tested and, and you know having to go through the, the difficulty of praying and believing and asking and waiting, and then having God come through at the eleventh hour. With the money that I needed, that was an enormous blessing to me. Now, of course, we all God does different things in all of our lives. It's not like you pray for money and God will send it. But if there's a trial that you're going through, God is doing something. And whatever he's doing, he's wanting to teach you something. And in my case and the result that God gave me, it was, it was the, the thing that I was asking for. And it, it strengthened my faith. And you know what? I mean, that, that made the next time I needed to trust God for financial provision easier. And, and now it's, it, it, it's much easier to trust God. It, it, it took some time and I went through the difficulties, but it's a lot easier to trust God for financial provision. And this test was a major step along the way of God teaching me that. God does that. Going through trials, it produces steadfastness. Well, let's take a look at Abraham's faith itself. Let's go to verse 3. I just got bifocals, so I'm like, I can see you and I'm trying to People say they look on the live stream, I take my glasses off and I read. And I'm like, all right, went to the eye doctor, got bifocals now. So this is, it's kind of tripping me out here. (laughs) All right, I can do this. Verse three. You know when you're getting, you know, you're getting old whenever. What's that? Yeah, yeah. You're older than me, Mike. So. uh... (laughs) All right, verse three. So Abraham rose early in the morning. Just Get this, what did God ask him to do? Go off to a place and kill your son. Verse 3, he rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Listen carefully to this. Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. We'll come back to that in a second. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. I can just imagine Abraham choking back to tears as he said those words. That would have been a long road trip, three days with your son and having chopped up the wood and taking it to this place. He's kind of wondering what was going through his mind, you know, as he, he imagined and pictured the death of his son at his own hand. But as I pointed out to in verse 5, there is a really important detail in the comment that Abraham makes to the young men, and it shows a little bit of his state of mind. And so, We'll do a little grammar nerdery here. It's a grammar nerd alert. Verse 5, let's do a subject predicate analysis, okay? Verse 5, Abraham said to the young men, stay with the donkey. Now, here's the second clause. I and the boy, so it's a, the subject is two people, right? I and the boy. Now, all of the verbs after that, there are three of them, they're all in the plural, first person plural. I and the boy will go over there and worship, and come again to you. That's interesting, isn't it? You see what I'm getting at? Both Abraham and the boy will go over there. They will worship, meaning the sacrifice, and they will both return. So God promised to make a great nation through Isaac, right? That was God's promise to Abraham. And we've seen already, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, Genesis 15. And that same God also required Abraham to kill that son. So if God required Abraham to kill Isaac, God would also have to raise Isaac from the dead. If they are to return to the the men, as Abraham said they would. It's the only way. He's not saying, I and the dead body will return. Because if God, God required Isaac as a burnt offering. So he said, I and the boy will return to you. So Abraham believed God, but there was also a sense that there would have to be some kind of resurrection. If Abraham fully went through with the act, then God, for God to be true to his word, God would have to raise Isaac from the dead. So we either knew that I mean, we have no indication that he believed that God would stop him, as God did. Maybe maybe he thought that. But if he didn't believe that, if he believed that he would actually go through with killing Isaac, he believed God enough to believe that God would actually raise Isaac from the dead. Now, if you think that sounds far-fetched, consider this is exactly the way the author of the book of Hebrews understands this story. So let me show you Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. Listen to this. Meaning that what happened here with this sacrifice was a a, a resurrection. Now, it wasn't a literal resurrection because God did not require him to actually go through with it. Spoiler alert, God will stop him. But there is a, Abraham's trust and belief, his faith was in a death, it was a death and resurrection kind of faith. Because he believed that even if he did go through with it, God would raise him back. That's how strong Abraham's faith had become. So if God is true to his word, God would raise Isaac from the dead. That was the test. Now, in school, if a teacher gives you a test, the teacher will ask you a series of questions, and if you give the right answers, you pass the test, right? But that's not how God's tests work. God isn't looking for the right answers. God is looking for the right actions. He's looking for follow-through and not just verbally saying the right things. So God didn't ask Abraham a question. Abraham, do you believe? And where Abraham would say yes. No, God required an action. Abraham, will you obey? Abraham, do this thing and trust me. So the test for Abraham wasn't about coming up with the right answer. It was about following through with the right action. And this is a common misconception about the word faith. The common misconception is that the word faith means simply intellectual assent. Like faith simply means I I hold something to be true in my mind, but I can act differently. Or it doesn't matter what I do as long as I have a few of the right beliefs in my mind. That is not what faith means. We'd call that easy believism, and it's a lie. Because the word faith has much more packed into it as far as the, the scriptures are concerned. The word faith has much more packed into it. Faith is... Is is believing loyalty. It, it is the the beliefs in your in your mind. It includes that, but those beliefs in your mind correspond with the actions that result. So in scripture, it's the action that is the true indicator of the faith. It's not just what you say; it's what you do. A couple of examples: James chapter one verse twenty two. He says, "But be doers of the word." There's the action. And not hearers only. Deceiving yourselves. So you see that? True faith includes actions. Here's another one. Chapter later, James chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. He says, faith by itself. Now he's referring there to just the the intellectual part. If the intellectual part, that kind of faith, if it does not have works, that faith is dead. That's not real faith. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. Do you see that? It's the action that indicates true faith. So last fall, we went on a men's retreat. Uh, good times, fellas, am I right? Good times? Yeah? Don't miss it this year. Um, and so part of the retreat was when we went rock climbing. So Jason Hudson and Anthony Sudo, they've got their rock climbing gear. And Anthony's like Spider-Man, if you know him. It's like, he it just kind of... Shimming up a wall like it's nothing so so they do that to set the gear in place and they got the hooks and the little uh whatever you call the little rings sticking out of the wall um what do you call those the rings in the wall what holds poles holes man This is what masks do to somebody that really relies on lip reading a lot. <laughs> well, whatever it is that you people are saying. <laughs> so Anthony would, would climb up there and kind of hook the, the ropes in there. And of course, when you're, when you're climbing the, the wall, you're supposed to believe that the ropes and the way that they're assembled there will hold you up, right? Now, for those of us kind of, um, you know, sitting around the rocks waiting for our turn, we could easily look up there and be like, oh, yeah, that'll hold. Yep, that'll hold him. No problem. I mean, yell up at her, hey, don't worry about it. It'll hold you. But when you're actually up in the air dangling 30 feet off the ground and your arms and your legs are too tired to hold on, it's a lot harder to believe that. And then you've got somebody that knows what they're doing, the belay, you know, the guy that's holding the rope at the bottom. Um whenever this happened to me, I'm, I'm like, I've climbed up a bit and I'm too far off the ground to just let go and fall. And, uh, but my, it's like, I'm getting like shaky and weak because I'm not used to using those muscles. And the guys were me say, i oh, just sit back in the, in the ropes. Cause it's like, you got the harness around your waist, you know? They said, yeah, yeah, just let go and sit back into the ropes. Now, <laughs> five minutes before I was like, yeah, yeah, it'll hold you, don't worry about it. But when you're like hanging for dear life and there's like a rock that will crush your skull below you, you don't want to just let go and sit back into the ropes unless you truly believe that it will hold you. Now, when, when you can't hold on, I mean, so you don't have any choice. It's just like eventually you're going to have to let go if you can't hold on. And then sure enough, you, you let go and you realize, it's like I remember like foot against a wall, 30 feet off the ground, and just my arms dangling like this, just resting. Now, once you the first time you do that, it's like terrifying. But once you've done it a few times, you're like, oh yeah, no problem. It's like it, it gets easier. Like the first time you do it, that's the test. That's when the faith becomes real, and the faith is demonstrated by some tangible action where the object of your faith is trusted, which is the rope in this case. But once you once you've acted in such a way, and the object of your faith has showed itself to be trustworthy. The rope. Then the next time you have to do it, it's a lot easier. You're like, oh yeah, I've done this a hundred times. I know the rope will hold me up. Some guy did actually end up falling uh, at the retreat. I think it um, hurt a leg. I don't remember who that was, but uh, it's because they, the guy. Uh, anyway, they didn't do it right. But uh, <laughs> I just totally insulted somebody. He's probably an experienced climber. Oh well, it doesn't matter. Anyway, but that's that's the thing. It's like whenever you whenever you demonstrate faith, you're acting on it. That's when it becomes real, and that's the test. The test is in the action. The test is not just in the words, right? So the best indicator of what you actually believe is not what you say, it's what you do. And the test is what shows the difference. So Abraham has been given the right, he's given the right answer. So the answer on the test is like, what are you going to do, Abraham's like, oh, me and the boy are going to go over there, we're going to worship, we're going to come back in a few minutes. Now that's the right answer, but really the action is where the test truly lies. So does Abraham believe strongly enough that God will raise Isaac from the dead to follow through and actually slaughter his son? Well, let's look at the sacrifice, verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told them or told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son And laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, here it is. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. There's the action. So, as painful as it was, Abraham was willing to obey God, not only with his words, but also with his actions. Do you see that? So, Isaac carried the wood, then Abraham took it, he arranged it in order. He took the fire and the knife into his hand. And then earlier we saw Isaac ask the question, Father, Abraham, here I am, son. We've got the wood and the fire, but where's the lamb? God will provide for himself the lamb, my son. And the commentators point out, it's like, is he saying God will provide for himself a lamb or God will provide himself a lamb who is my son? We don't know. The grammar doesn't make it totally clear, but it's, it seems like Abraham might be indicating, or at least the, the, the writing of this is indicating that Isaac is himself the lamb, and he's saying that. And so when Abraham bound Isaac, that's another interesting thing, because I, we don't see any evidence that Isaac resisted. He didn't fight back. He willingly laid down his life. Now, Abraham's an old man, right? I mean, he's 100 years old, at least 100, I mean, most likely well past that, like 115, 120 years old. Uh, most likely, Isaac is a teenager at this point. So it's not like this little four or five-year-old child. But Isaac's a strapping young lad at this point. And so I think he can handle his old man in his teenage years. So if you've ever put a coat on a squirmy three-year-old, you know how hard it is whenever somebody's trying to resist you, especially if you're trying to tie him up. So Isaac didn't resist. And it seems as though Isaac's faith is being tested as well. That Isaac wouldn't have understood the command, but he obeyed God anyway. So Abraham's test then comes to the pinnacle in verse 10, where he laid the wood on the altar. His son, Isaac, is bound. He's lying on the top. The, the fire is ready to go, and Abraham has got a knife in his hand. Verse Verse 11. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So the testing part is now complete. Abraham learned to trust God through impossible circumstances and God provided an answer. God came through. God prevented it. And then God provided a substitute. And God said, now I know that you fear God. And that's what God calls it, fear, fearing God. That's what God calls it when somebody is totally surrendered to him, somebody is totally loyal and believing faith to him. So to fear God is to treasure him above everything else, to know and love and obey God above all things, to not withhold anything from him. Fearing God, that's what it is. Now, verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham. By the way, the angel of the Lord Whenever you see that in the Bible, that's a, it's kind of a technical term. And that, it's another way of saying God himself. It's God manifest in a particular way. But this is God speaking, not, not just an angel who showed up. So this is God speaking. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. Now listen to the language here. It should be very familiar at this point. is God once again making, rather reaffirming his earlier promises, right? You saw this in Genesis 12. It showed up again in Genesis 13. showed up in Genesis 15, Genesis 17. Um, it's, it's sprinkled throughout. I will bless you. I will multiply you, give you many offspring, make great nations of you. Bless your name, and you'll be a blessing to all the nations of the world. This language is just peppered throughout, and we'll will keep seeing it. All throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, it'll keep showing up. And so God says all of these things, and it's, it's not hard to see in the midst of this, this story, why it is that this story has captured the imagination of every generation of Christians since the time of Christ. I mean, if you're paying attention, the gospel parallels, they just leap off of the page because this story is a very clear picture of Christ. Now, before we talk about that more fully, I, I do want to address one thing. A lot of people struggle with this story, and particularly you'll see this come up with atheists and agnostics who want to complain about God being a moral monster for requiring him to sacrifice his son or playing mind games with him or being mean or something like that. So I want to talk about that for a minute. Basically, the question is, how could God require Abraham to kill his son? Even if he didn't intend him to go through with it, it was mean to ask him to do that in the first place. Maybe you think that yourself, or maybe you've heard that before, and I just want to dispel that myth right now. We have to recognize something. Abraham, before God called him, Abraham was a pagan. He lived his whole life as a pagan. He was 75 years old when God called him, and he lived his whole life in Ur of the Chaldees, and that's a pagan nation, right? So in ancient pagan religions, child sacrifice was a common practice. And I'm sure once Abraham and Sarah arrived in Canaan, the Canaanites where they were living now, It was a common practice. It's one of the reasons why God wanted to expel the Canaanites from the land was because of practices such as this. You can read about it in Deuteronomy. Child sacrifice was a common practice in the ancient world, ancient religions of pagan gods. It was in Abraham's homeland, and it was also in Canaan, where Abraham was living at the time. This was going on going all, all around. And for people from a pagan background, a god, a deity, asking for a child sacrifice was not unusual. So Abraham would have been familiar with the practice, even if he was surprised that God himself would have required it. Now, to the ancient reader, so let's say you're an Israelite, you know, Hebrew in, you know, the wilderness of Sinai after Moses first published this, and you're hearing these stories and you're you're learning about God. It's like you are surprised at the twist at the end of the story. You're familiar with child sacrifice. You're familiar with the fact that the pagan gods required this. What would have been unfamiliar and very surprising was that God at the last moment would say, don't do that. And by God doing this, God is establishing a very clear contrast between himself and all the pagan gods and the pagan religions of the ancient day. He had to do it this one time to powerfully demonstrate it to a man who's cultivated his faith over two and a half decades. And to do it in this situation at this moment God is illustrating something very powerful and it's the only time that God ever did this but at the very beginning of the story it's like God did it with Abraham it is written in scripture and so now we can see God is not like the pagan gods God is not like the world God is different and he powerfully demonstrated that in the life of Abraham and God provided a sacrifice substitute there was a ram caught in a thicket and so that story, it shows us that God is different. It lays the foundation for God's later commands to never, ever, ever, ever do such a thing. To never, ever intentionally kill your child. To never offer a child in pagan sacrifice. And folks, these things have happened in the not so recent past, and there are versions of it that still happen today. Leviticus 18.21. Now this this is on the heels of you know, by God's story here in Genesis 22, Leviticus 18, 21 shows up in the context, the same collection of books in the Old Testament. It says this, You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, who was a very well-known pagan god at the time, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So Genesis 22 establishes this context. God would never require us to do that and then it is explicitly commanded to God's people, the same people that would receive the story originally, to never do that. So God demanded Abraham to sacrifice his only son, but he spared that child to show that he is a merciful and compassionate God, and he will supply a substitute. And he did that knowing that when the true son of God appeared, he would not be spared. So the story of Isaac is a picture of the gospel. Isaac is the son of Abraham who anticipates the greater and true and full son of God, the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And so these parallels are so powerful. Isaac is the only true son of Abraham whom he loves. Jesus Christ is the only begotten son of the Father whom the Father loves. Isaac carried the wood for the sacrifice up the hill on his back. Jesus carried a wooden cross up the hill on his back. Isaac did not resist being bound and laying on the wood. And Jesus was silent before his captors. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. God provided a ram as a substitute for Isaac. And God provided the true lamb of God as a substitute for us. The book of Hebrews says Abraham received Isaac back from the dead figuratively. But the same book tells us that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead literally. And finally, God promised to give Abraham a great name and to bless him and to bless all the nations of the earth through him. And likewise, that promise is fulfilled and continues to be fulfilled in the true son of Abraham, the true son of God, Jesus Christ, who is the name above all nations the uh, name above all names and in whose name all the nations are blessed and that's us we are the nations we are the ones that have been blessed because Christ is our substitute who died in our place who carried his own cross and was crucified the true son of god that died that was not spared and 3 days later he was risen again and this is what we get to celebrate next week We celebrate the resurrection, that he was not a figurative resurrection, as some people would want to say. No, it was a literal, out of the grave, his body rose again. And he now lives to intercede for us. Jesus Christ lives bodily now and forever will live and reign. And so we are his people brought into that reign, that kingdom, and we shall live with him forever. So this story, all the way back in Genesis 22, at the very beginning, the book of beginnings, the beginning of the Bible, this story shines like a beacon in the Old Testament. And it gives us clues into God's plan of redemption that would come many thousands, at least 2,000 years later. And the only sacrifice that he requires of us is not the sacrifice of our sons. but Rather, it's the sacrifice of faith, laying down our lives as a living sacrifice. Let's pray. Our Father, it's incredible to think of The sacrifice that you made, the sacrifice of your only begotten Son because of your people whom you love, and that as much as Christ means to you as your Son, the second person of the Trinity, God Himself in human form, as much as Christ is delightful to you, and that you allowed your Son to be crucified. That he was sacrificed, not figuratively, but literally laid down his life like a lamb before its shearers, is silent, he did not make a sound, and he was bound, he carried his cross up the hill, he was crucified to a cross, being nailed there, and hung there dying. Well, people mocked him. That was your son, your only son, whom you love. And three days later, that son opened the grave and walked out alive and victorious, having crushed the serpent's head with victory and power, having then sent the Spirit into our hearts as your church. We are now living sacrifices who fill the world with your presence, as witnesses to the gospel, the good news that Jesus has overcome. So, Father, as our faith is tested, our belief in that truth is tested, Lord God, I pray that you will strengthen us. May we pass the test. You are a good Father who tests us to teach us because you love us. You want us to be more fully committed to you. So we ask you, God, that by your power and your grace that you will lead us through any trial or temptation that we face right now, so that we can experience your victory. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who is is struggling with a trial, going through a test, and their faith in you is being weakened and assaulted, and they're struggling to believe and they don't understand what you're doing, and they're asking, why, God, is this happening to me? Father, will you lead them by your tender hand to trust that you are good and that you are producing something good in them. May you make them steadfast and that you will make them perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You can do that, Lord, and we pray that you will. Thank you, Jesus, for Holy Week. And we ask you, God, that you all meet with us in a powerful, profound, and special way this week as we anticipate the glorious celebration of Easter next Sunday. And we pray all of these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information, visit ctksnc.com.